Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. The Golden State Warriors are now up 2-0 in the NBA Finals with a 132-113 win over the Cleveland Cavaliers, successfully defending home court in the first two games. And I talked about it with Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post. Conversation runs about 35 minutes. It goes a little bit far afield talking about the future and everything else like that, but that's what Tim was inspired by with the game, and I'm happy to indulge him. I thought we had a good conversation, so I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Anytime, Danny. We haven't actually talked at all about this game. We saw each other before, and I'll just start it out with opening the floor to you. Of what was your biggest takeaway from game two? I mean, I, I haven't really talked to you in a while, so I mean, to me, it's not. Uh, it's the same takeaway I had from game one, and the same takeaway I've had for months now, frankly, which is that you know I, I've been pretty outspoken, as you know, that I don't think the Cavs can guard the Warriors. They're a team. That was 29th in defense after the All-Star break. They did nothing in the Eastern Conference playoffs to convince me that they could turn it up when it mattered. And look, as you watch this series go on, you know for everything else that, that's gone on, whether you talk about the uh, performances that Curry and Durant have had, how well LeBron has played, the fact that Tristan Thompson disappeared, uh, the fact that Kyrie Irving struggled today, the fact that Warriors really haven't played their best and won both of these games pretty handily, uh, I, I think the overriding thing here is that no matter what Cleveland tries to do, they cannot guard Golden State. And to me, that is what is keeping this from being anywhere near a competitive series. Along those lines, something that I found interesting was actually one of the few times when the converse was true. So there was a stretch partially due to Draymond Green's foul trouble, but there was a stretch, I think it was in the second quarter, where Sean Livingston played extended minutes. Not only did he look a little bit tired, but that was one of the few times in this series where LeBron James has been able to freelance because you don't he doesn't have to guard Sean Livingston. And all of a sudden you saw this absolutely monstrous LeBron defensive performance. He was doing a really good job. And then it was notable in terms of how how it was an aberration in this series, because most of the time the Warriors don't have those kind of Lance Stevenson type players that the Cavs have feasted off of defending in the first three rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, that's true. And and look, it, you know, that 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 was kind of a weird lineup and LeBron did take advantage of it. But again, this is why the Warriors, when you have top four, top 15 players in the league, this is why they're so impossible to guard when they're locked in because, you know, even if one or two of them aren't on the court, you still got Kevin Durant out there. You still got Steph Curry out there. You still got Kevin Clay Thompson out there. You got Draymond Green out there. They, they just have, a, you know, and then they've got all these role players fitting around them. They just got a preponderance of options to go to that, you know, especially for a team like Cleveland where, yeah, LeBron could occasionally turn it up and they can, they can have moments. But you need to play for 48 minutes defensively against this Warriors team, and they're just not capable of doing that. 
Nate and I talked a lot about, and he's the one who brings this up, and I deserve credit and deserves credit for it about the idea of Oklahoma City having too many one-way players, and the idea that that was currently, you know, in the old system when they had their when they had Serge Ibaka and they had Kevin Durant, this was not true, but you know, going in the way that they did with guys like Andre Robertson and Ennis Cantor and giving those guys more minutes, that helped doom them in the playoffs just because it made it harder for them to kind of reach the to reach that pinnacle especially against a good team and you know they came awfully close to being the Warriors last year then this year they were more flawed I feel like Cleveland is a similar way that they just don't have enough guys that can contribute or at least not be easily exploited on both ends of the floor you're you're a thousand percent right and that's something I've been harping on for months which is that and so what I wrote after game one I think it still applies after game two you go up and down the Cavs roster and they have surrounded LeBron James with a lot of terrific offensive players, guys like Darren Williams, Kyle Korver, Channing Frye, um, guys that can fill it up, can get you 15, 20 points in a game, can hit five, six, seven threes in a game, uh, can, can do a lot of things for you. Uh, that includes guys like Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving and even, and even to a lesser extent, J.R. Smith. Uh, all, all terrific offensive players when they get going. Uh, other than really J.R., who's only an average defensive player, uh, none of those guys play defense. And, you know, it's turned, it's turned the Cavs into this team that can outscore virtually anyone in the league except for Golden State. The problem is that when they play Golden State, they, they are not able to guard them, whereas Golden State has the best defensive team in the league, or if, if you want to quibble with that, maybe you could say they're second or third. So they're able to do it at both ends in a way that Cleveland is not. And to your point, you know, that, that allows the Cavs to really get exploited on the uh, on the defensive side of the ball. And that, that's why in this series, as you've seen it gone on, you know, people keep saying, well, the Cavs need to slow the game down. The Cavs need to slow the game down. The Cavs can't slow the game down because when they get into the half court, they can't get good shots against the Golden State Warriors because Golden State defense is excellent. And there's a lot of length and a lot of athleticism. Whereas um, where when the, when the Warriors get in the half court, yes, they're going to be less efficient because you're always less efficient in the half court. But they're going to be able to get shots far, far easier against the Cavs than the other way around. And Cleveland, the only way Cleveland can win the series, which is why I think you've seen them play the way they have so far, is to try to outscore the Warriors. And that, that to me, is why this is just a dead-on-arrival series, because I don't see any way that Cleveland can outscore them four times out of seven games, and especially now four times out of five, unless something drastic happens to change the calculus of this series. I understand your argument and agree with the broad sentiment of it, but I think that their best chance of winning is actually the slowing it down in some elements, not entirely. And I've I've talked about this before on Dunkton, actually more than on Lockdown Warriors, about the idea of kind of a bifurcated offense. So the idea being you push it early, but you're choosy. So you try to you try to push it early just to keep the Warriors because transition defense is the worst thing they do. So you try to push it in that, but then if you don't get a good shot, then you work hard for it. But what you said is is a very important point, which is that playing a slow system is predicated on getting enough stops and getting enough good baskets to make it work. If you can't do that, you're still increasing the variance by reducing the number of possessions, but you're not necessarily giving yourself a good chance to win. It just might be a little bit better, maybe. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, look, this is what I wrote after game one. Go back to last year's playoffs. Now, yes, I think the Warriors had a lot of things go against them in the finals. Curry got hurt, Green got suspended, Bogut got hurt, Andre Godala was on himself, Harrison Barnes missed a million open shots. They still almost won the series, but they didn't. The Cavs won, and how did the Cavs win? They turned it into a slugfest for 48 minutes, 
And their goal was to get it to be with six minutes to go, the game is tied, and we could have Kyrie Irving and LeBron James go out there and try to win the game for us. Two incredible isolation players, right? They cannot play that way anymore because they don't have the ability to turn the game into a slugfest because, to your point, you know, I agree with you, to be clear. You know, I've heard you make that point. I'm not saying that that they should fly down and try to get a shot in eight seconds. And if they, if they can't get a good one, just jack it up. But they've clearly decided that the way they're going to win the series is not by turning it into a slugfest because they can't because they don't have anybody that can get the stops. So they have to try to outscore Golden State, which is why you see them, you know, trying all these different weird lineups to try to, to get as much offense out there as they can at all times. That's why Tristan Thompson has stopped playing. They're playing Kevin Love at center. They've tried to get Channing Fryman at center. They're playing Corver and Williams minutes. They're, they're trying to get as much offense on the court as they can to try to counter what Golden State is doing. And the problem is, even when they get, when they get those guys out there, Golden State can attack all of them for easy baskets. And at the other end, they've got to work really hard to get their open shots. And that's just not a calculus that over 48 minutes is, is going to work out very often. I was also struck in this game by how much went right for Cleveland in that first half. I mean, the turnovers are the easiest place to start, but that is important. 13 to 7, they had 17 points on Warriors turnovers at halftime. LeBron was awesome. I mean, he was he had I think it was 18 and 10 at halftime and was but the statistical part of it is there, but he was just providing a consistent impact. He was plus 6. So you had all of that stuff. I mean, the aberrational amount of turnovers. You had LeBron being as good as you could possibly expect. Yeah, Kyrie missed a few shots. And Love was also very good in the first half. And they were still down three. And that's when I I had a thought that was probably weird among people in our business and in the more casual fans as well, which is the Cavs are in real trouble. Because if everything goes, not everything, but if enough goes in their direction and they're still down, you can't expect that to continue. And then that's exactly what happened in the second half. It was the same game as game one. I thought they were going to get killed in the second half and they got killed in the second half. I mean, in game one, the, the, the Warriors couldn't hit a shot. They came out really tense. Uh, they, 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 they didn't make any baskets basically the whole first half. And they still, they still were up 60-52 at halftime. And this game was the same way in reverse in that they made a bunch of shots, but they also threw the ball all around the gym, gave up a ton of, of fast break points because of that to, to the Cavs. And LeBron was great. And Kevin Love was really good in the first half, to your point. And they were still losing. And there was, there was no way, you know, you thought that maybe because it was close, LeBron might be able to steal this one. But again, this game, again, still felt the same as game one, where you never really thought that Cleveland had a chance. And maybe that changes in Cleveland, and maybe they play better, and maybe the Warriors get tight or play worse. But to me, the gulf between these teams is just so wide that, you know, there's so many things that have to go right for Cleveland to win. And the path, there's just so many more paths for Golden State to do what they need to do to get wins. It's just, it, again, like, you know, I know everybody wants this series to be competitive and, and we waited a long time for it, but I think the fact of the matter is that unless something happens here to change the calculus of this series, I just don't know what what Cleveland can realistically do to make this more than maybe a five-gamer and bring it back here on Monday night for, for a game for a game five next week to, to potentially close it out because I, I just, again, like – you have to look at these series as, you know, you can look at it as a chess match or whatever. I, I tend to look at it as a math problem. And to me, it, the Warriors just present, you know, a real math problem for the Cavs that they just, they just don't have the right equation to solve. 
And I think a big part of that is Kevin Durant, because Durant provides, he changes what was a kind of a solvable part of that equation into something that they do not have a counter for. And something that I thought was interesting that Ty Lue tried in this game was putting different guys on Durant to allow LeBron to, to try other elements of his defense. Shump actually, I thought, did a pretty good job on him in the first half, all things considered. And, you know, that had its like, but you kind of always thought, oh, that's not going to work for the long term. Durant had a big second half. He had nine points, I think, in each of the third and fourth quarters. And also what happened was Stephen Curry went from his worst half of basketball in months to a very good half of basketball. And surprise, surprise, that made a major difference. Look, the Warriors have two of the, the you know, the, the Cavs have the best player in the series, right? They got the best player in the league and LeBron James. The Warriors have the next four best players in the series. So, yes, in, in general, you would say, all right, if you're picking sides, who are you picking first? Okay, that team is usually going to win. Well, they're not going to win if the other team has the four best players on it, or the, four, the, the second through fifth best players on it, I mean. And, you know, so, uh, you know, yes, I mean, Durant has been tremendous, and obviously plugging him in for Harrison Barnes is just a gigantic gigantic difference and you know I, I do think that a lot of people coming into the series thought it was going to be more competitive than than they they should have just because of the fact that LeBron James is on the other team and the Cavs won the series last year but you know between the fact that Durant is now on the team and the Warriors have four of the top 15 players in the league on one team and are just they're just their talent advantage is just overwhelming and you know whether it's whether it's Curry or it's Durant or Clay Thompson who finally broke off in a slump and had 22 points tonight, um, or Draymond Green uh, getting going, um, it's just they just have so many options and so many different ways that they can attack a team that when they're locked in like this and they're actually focused and playing hard, which they weren't for large stretches of the season because they could coast to 67 wins, which they largely did, they're just an unstoppable team. What was so striking to me about this game was that this had a lot of the hallmarks of the type of games that even against, you know, that against a good team, the Warriors lose. They turned the ball over. They were reckless with it. Draymond Green was seemingly in foul trouble for the entire game. He got two fouls in the first, picked up his third at the end of the first, then picked up a fourth, you know, got it, got it, or maybe picked up his third at the beginning of the second. It was 10 seconds into the second quarter. And that's part of the reason why Durant was the central figure for me in this game was because he was a big part of what made their defense still work even when Green was off the floor and Durant was on. Their defensive rating during that time was like 113. You know, that doesn't sound great, but when LeBron James is on the floor for almost all those minutes and you're still outscoring your opponent, that's more than enough. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they just they just have so many, you know, watching these games, it's like, it's it's almost like performance art. It's not really a competition. I mean, the, the biggest competition in this series is who's going to win MVP between uh, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. Like, they just, they just have too many options for a normal team to be able to to go up against and stop and uh, you know I just I, I just I, you know it, it is it is kind of disappointing because you know we this has been such a hype series and you know we really we really thought it was going to be this titanic a lot of people really thought it was going to be a, this real titanic clash and be a lot of fun to watch all these stars go head to head but you know at the end of the day you know the, the Warriors just have so much more talent than the Cavs and frankly every other team in the league and you know you can't help but watch these first two games and yes they have to play two more and yes who knows what could happen somebody could get hurt and something crazy could happen but if things stand as they are now it's hard to see a scenario where the Warriors don't win the series in any more than five games and it's very hard over the next two years at least 
to look around the league and see any team that is going to remotely challenge them. I've been thinking a lot about how this series is going to shift the way some people think about last year. So last year wasn't achievement, it was an accomplishment. I don't personally don't think that anything from that will happen before or since should diminish that. But I think that you're appreciating how remarkable an accomplishment it was. Because Cleveland, you know, they were down 3-1. They were getting outplayed pretty significantly in the series, even with Curry not being 100%. Like, yeah, he was hurt, and that was a big part of why the why the Cavs were able to come back. Yep. But they were they yep. were going through that and Draymond Green and everything else like that. I consider 2016 to be one of those, you know, singular accomplishments. Yes, so many things went right. And I feel that I feel like that's more impressive to me the more I watch this. You're just seeing how many things went right for them last year. And then, you know, and so I don't know what I take from that. I don't know if it means anything, but I do find it interesting. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, you know, it is you know, it, it was an incredible accomplishment to, to win that series and win two games in, in, in Oakland and, and pull that one out. And, you know, it's just, you know, it, it is it is just it is just incredible to watch this Warriors team play right now. And like I said, you know, just realistically looking at it, you know, when is the next time there's going to be a team that's better than them? I mean, you probably have to say the, the earliest it could possibly be is maybe, you know, just if Clay Thompson leaves as a free agent in 2019, uh, you know, maybe then they start to slide. Maybe, you know, maybe then you have to start to wonder about stuff. But I mean, if those four guys stay together, you know, at least the, that's why I say at least the next two seasons, and then they're going into the chase center in San Francisco. I can't imagine that Joe Lacob and company are going to be like, yeah, you know what, let's break up this super team uh, going into our brand new arena. I mean, that, that just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So, yeah, I mean, I think if, if you just look at this team, it's just to me for at least the next two or three years, I just don't see how there's going to be another team barring, obviously barring injury, but it's assuming health for them. It's just hard to see another team coming along that's going to be able to do what Cleveland did last year anytime soon. I don't want to put the cart before the horse because there's a lot of time. And I actually had a conversation with a few people inspired by Kevin Pelton's piece on a similar point about this a couple days ago. And I think what's intriguing to me about this whole concept is the idea of where are the next MVP caliber players going to come up? Because I feel like a team built around, other than Kawhi, who's younger than all these guys, a team built around a current MVP candidate is not going to get it done. You can't combine, you know, if the Banana Boat guys got together, they're not better than this Warriors team. Like I think that's pretty definitive. That was a discussion that happened last year. They're not better than this team. So even if you, you know, Westbrook and Harden got back together, they're not better than this team. So what you're looking at is, okay, who can put it together who's younger and then as the Warriors age out of it can filter in and the answer is we're still going to see it because one of the hilarious parts and this is this this is a thing that happened in 2011 is going to happen again which is that by the league overreacting to the just christened super team the new collective bargaining agreement that came in right after them is going to make it harder for another team to threaten them because they made it harder to create those teams. Yeah, they did. You know, it's, it's, it is, it is funny how the same kind of scenario played out. Um, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to just look at, all right, who's the next team that's going to beat this Warriors team, you know, it's, it's teams like potentially Philadelphia, Joel Embiid stays healthy and Ben Simmons develops and they, they hit with their top three pick this year and they add some players. It's Milwaukee. If Giannis continues to develop and Jabari Parker can get healthy and Thon Maker takes strides forward. It's, 
the, the Celtics, if, if Markel Fultz, who they likely take with the number one pick, becomes a star and they can maybe use the next year's Brooklyn pick to either trade for a star or um, draft another one, or Jalen Brown becomes really good, or it's Minnesota where Carl Towns is good. Maybe Andrew Wiggins takes a step forward and you know they have a top 10 pick this year. Maybe they get you know another player that could go with those guys. Maybe Chris Dunn you know, recovers from what's been a brutal rookie year. Uh, but if you're looking at teams like that, or maybe the Spurs can get some people in 2018, and that's kind of the dark horse where if Kawhi could get some ready-made players around him, that's the one team you could look at and say that team could make a big jump. Um, if they could get you know a couple real star-level players to play with Kawhi when they have basically no money on their books. And, and I'm a big fan of Deontay Murray. I think he could be really good. So you know they have some pieces where maybe you could see them. But it, it's just hard right now to look at it and say, barring you know guys teaming up in San Antonio, basically, you know, between now and 2020, I, I just don't know how this team is going to lose unless, you know, injuries or some other unexpected thing gets in the way that, that derails this that we, we can't see right now. Again, cart before the horse, but the other part about Durant, and you and I talked about this, Nate and I talked about it when it happened, is I'm not, I think it would take some severe injuries as well. I mean, obviously you can also get into the variants of a seven game series and all that kind of stuff, but like the, the presence of Durant is so fundamentally different with this team just because they have another place to get successful offense. An injury now to any one of their key players is now more survivable than it was before. So maybe even at that point, you know, maybe even if they had to play a couple of games without one of these guys guys they could do it yeah i mean it's it's uh it's crazy i mean it's it's just they have just an unbelievable um they have an unbelievable array of talent and it it, you know it's 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 kind of stunning and you know and it it is you know it it is it is going to be fascinating to see what happens because you know I, i think i think people saying that that this year's playoffs are bad for the nba uh, is kind of premature and silly because this is the first year that this team was together. But I mean, look, I think if you, if you, let's say we go through the next three years in the playoffs and the Warriors, let's say the Warriors just for, just for jokes, let's say the Warriors go 48 and five, right. And they just kind of roll through the three straight years of playoffs. And it's just never really competitive. You know, at some point you do have to wonder, like, is that the people start to get a little bored? If like they're, if they're just that much better than everybody else. Now, obviously, there's a million things that can happen, and you know, we're, we're talking a lot about a lot. Of, we're talking about a lot of hypotheticals here, but I, I just think that it's—I uh, I just think that it's—it's—it's it's, it's just really hard to look around and, and like we were just talking about. I mean, all the teams you're looking at that maybe are going to be better than them are teams that are you know pretty far away um, because the the teams that are good now don't have the ability to add the pieces necessary to really take the jump and the Warriors players aren't really anywhere near the age range that, you know, te- you know, some teams like say that the Celtics uh, with KG Pearson and Allen, like some of these other teams that were a little older when they got put together, you know, they're, they're not, they're not going to age out of their prime in two years. I mean, this whole group should be somewhere between what 31 and 33, four years from now. Yeah. So, like even then, like even then, like that's the age, age range LeBron James is in now. So it's it's not like they're going to be in their late thirties then, and and guys like you know and like a guy like Steph will be the oldest one of that whole group, and he should probably age pretty spectacularly given his shooting ability. So, um, yeah, it's 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 going to be fascinating to see what happens because you know if the Warriors do somehow win these next two games and and go sixteen and zero in these playoffs, um, I, I just 
you know, it it truly will be a remarkable thing. And it's just, it's hard to see the team coming down the pipe that's going to put a stop to it. When I wrote the Sporting News piece back in November or December, whenever that was, the idea that actually helped spark it beyond the fact that I'd written the piece for Warriors World six months before was the idea of having two MVPs, prior MVPs, in their 20s at the same time. And that idea was so fascinating to me. The idea of having two players that could easily make a claim to being the best player in the world on the same team. Because as great as Dwayne Wade was when Miami started, we never really got to see it. You know, that's something that's unusual. And that's also what makes the Warriors probably going to age really well. It's absolutely fascinating to see what's going to happen here because it's virtually unprecedented. It really is. I mean, I mean, look, they're just, there are very few times and uh, it's, it's just, there's very, there's just been very few times in NBA history where four of the best 15 players in the NBA are on one team. And that's what the Warriors have. And, you know, three of those guys can also be elite. You know, three of the, three of those guys are elite offensive players and three of those guys are elite defensive players. I think that both Clay and, and Kevin are, are both the guys that are, that can, can and often are elite at both ends. And when you have when you have three of the best offensive players and three of the best defensive players in the league on the same team, I, to me, it's, you just you just look at that, and uh, it's it's just hard to see how that is going to be toppled anytime soon. It, you know, it, like I said, it's kind of boring to say, and it's it, it doesn't make for the most exciting you know copy or uh, or podcasting or radio or television or whatever to say. Well, this team is just going to obliterate everybody for the next couple of years. But you no, know, I think looking at it realistically, if everybody stays healthy, like I keep saying, I, I just, you know, I, I, I'd love to find the team that's going to be good enough to take them on, but I just can't, uh, I, I just, I just don't see where that, where it comes from. A couple of quick things on the game. I don't, I, I don't argue with that. I just, you know, I don't really have much to add. A couple of quick things. One I thought was, yeah, no, was interesting for sure. was the way that Kerr reacted to kind of what Cleveland did, especially with Draymond's foul trouble, going first with bringing Durant in at the beginning of the second quarter, 10 seconds in, going with that. And then the sec- in the third quarter, going even further and using Durant at center. I thought that was fascinating and a, a departure from what he has done before when he's, his comfort blankets have mostly been centers. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I also thought that, you know, him going back to um, to Draymond Green with seven minutes to go in the second quarter was a big moment. Um, you know, Draymond had three fouls, but I was a gutsy call at the time by Steve Kerr, who made his return to the, uh, you know, like you said, made his return to the sidelines today. And, uh, you know, that was a big moment because the Cavs were starting to get some momentum then. And when Draymond came back in, things kind of settled. And even though, even though Golden State went into the half up three, you know, that if Cleveland had been able to go on a run there, like it felt like they could, and, you know, they go into half up six or up seven, even if, even if we felt the same way about how, you know, Golden State had controlled the game, it's still different if you go in and you're, and you're trailing and if you're winning. And, you know, I do think the fact that, that they held that lead there and had Draymond out there at center, or not out there at center, but had, had him out there, um, you know, with 3,000 and really rode it for most of that, that second quarter was a, was a big call by Steve and it worked out. Then the other thing that I thought was notable in this game was Stephen Curry's 10 free throw attempts in the first quarter. I thought that 
maybe all but one of the calls was reasonable. I thought the Jefferson one was was a, one of those examples of a guy just knowing an opponent really well. I mean, Jefferson's a former teammate. He knew that Jefferson does that foul, and he was, to, when I, to my eye, I haven't looked at too many replays, he was in the air before the foul was called. And in that case, yeah, I don't, I don't love that you know, that guys do that to contact. But if a guy is actually in the shooting motion before you commit the lazy foul, then it's a shooting foul. Yeah, no, it is. And, and, uh, you know, the, the other, the other foul, I think, uh, Corver got another three shot foul that, that wasn't uh, a gimmicky one either, but yeah, it was funny. It was funny. You've seen Chris Paul try to get that foul so many times and, you know, really was just good, good anticipation by Steph to think he was going to get grabbed by Jefferson and, and start to chuck it up because unlike all the Chris Paul plays, when, when Chris would try to do it after, you know, either after contact, try to fling it up, Steph was already in the middle of a shooting motion when, when, when Richard Jefferson grabbed him. And so, you know, really it was a pretty easy call for the rest to, to give him the three shots there. Last thing, at least in terms of my mind, obviously you can go wherever you want. What did you think about kind of Kerr, the difference between Kerr and Brown, as as we talked briefly about, I, th- I think that could have been in a different game, the, one of the big storylines of the game. What did you see that was different from Kerr being on the sideline than Brown, or was there really anything? Honestly, I didn't really think there was much different. I mean, the thing that, the thing that people uh, maybe don't realize or haven't thought about is that, you know, Steve has basically been coaching the team for the last three or four weeks. Now, he wasn't doing any media. Mike was doing that. And he wasn't actually on the sidelines uh, because Mike was doing that. Mike Brown was doing that. But, um, you know, Steve was running practices. He was running film sessions. He was running coaches meetings. Uh, he was talking to the team before, during, and after the game in the locker room. He, he was doing literally everything but walking out there and drawing up plays. So they didn't, you know, they didn't drastically change up the rotation. I mean, they did. They had to do some different things with with the ran at center and stuff because of foul trouble and different things. But it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like it wasn't stuff that Mike Brown was doing. I mean, they went to, you know, they, he went to the smaller lineup a little bit in game one too. And uh, you know, I, I think I think it was really just the fact that. You know, the Warriors had their coach back and, and and the fact that, you know, things have gone on the way they have without really a great deal of difference, you know, to me speaks to, you know, both the culture of the Warrior organization where they, they have a pretty well-run machine with a, a ton of talented players and also, a, you know, an experienced coaching staff now and, um, and, and an infrastructure to kind of handle this. And, you know, the kind of the ethos of Steve Kerr's is still in this team where it's, you know, everybody puts everybody else before themselves and, yeah, that's something that Steve really believes in. It's, you see it in the way Golden State plays. They're incredibly selfless, selfless on offense, you know, racking up 30-plus assists a game with guys like, you know, Durant and Curry and, and Thompson all in the court who all can, you know, isolate and score if they want. And, you know, it it, it, it does just kind of reinforces, you know, everything that Steve has made the Warriors about. That's a great encapsulation. And also, I think it's good to separate, to say how different that absence is than it was last year, where when he was gone, he was more gone than now. And, you know, he, he was, yeah. he was, he was like a, a voice, you know, kind of a, you could think of him as a voice in the coaching room more in that way. In this one, you're right. It's more of his, pre- it's a consistent presence. It's just that it's more in, it's less in the part that fans see. And so he has yeah, been a good part of it. Yeah, and last year was kind of, and last yeah, and last year was kind of like the inmates running the asylum for a right. while. I mean, he had Draymond Green freelancing and putting himself in and out of games. And, you know, not that Luke Walton did a great job. I'm not I'm not diminishing what he did. And like you said, it was a much different situation because, you know, it was, Steve was a lot of times just wasn't around um, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, Luke was kind of on his own and, and they, they, the Warriors hadn't gone through it before. 
you know, they obviously now they have Kevin Durant there, so they have more vets on the team. I mean, you know, now they have guys like David West around. I mean, it's it's a much different team than last year too. And Steve was around all year and he's been around during the playoffs, but it just it just has a much different feel right now than it did then. And I, I think you saw that in the fact that, you know, for all the talk about, you know, this being a distraction for the Warriors, I think if, you know, being around the team, I, it just didn't really feel like one because Steve was around. I mean, he, you'd go to practice, you'd be at practice, you'd go to shoot around, he'd be at shoot around. Um, you know, you'd go to the games, you'd see him at the games. I mean, you'd see him all the time. So it, it wasn't like he was out of sight, out of mind, like he was at times last year. It was that he was around and it was just a matter of, is he going to be able to actually get out there and be on the sideline and coach? And, you know, I think you saw tonight when, you know, came one and game two, you know, the Warriors did different things wrong. Ironically, they turned the ball over today, which drives Steve the most insane. But, you know, I almost made a joke on Twitter that they were trying to give him some migraines and have him go back to the locker room the way they were playing in the first half. But, um, you know, it was a very similar game. And I think it just does underscore that, you know, this team, you know, really is really is just firing on all cylinders at this point. And, you know, whether whether Steve can stick through it or not, it's just hard to see them, you know, hard to see them having any trouble anytime soon. And it, it feels exceedingly unusual that they've been able to do this so seamlessly, but it also ties in with an idea. And I don't mean this, I, I, I've, I've mentioned this before and fans sometimes get a little bit angry about it, but the expression that I use is what you see is not all there is. And I think that's the curse experience this time around has been a wonderful example of that, of, you know, that the elements, not only the elements that we get to see that the public doesn't get to see, but also the elements that we don't get to see that Kerr has been so active in those components of it, that him not being on the sideline for those two and a half hours on national TV. I don't even know if that's how long the game actually was today. You know, for that for that stretch of time, actually, I think it was two and a half hours, that there's a lot more to coaching at the NBA level than that, and that Kerr has been able to, to basically fill all those roles. So that is a bigger piece of continuity. But then the other important part of this, and you mentioned this too, is laying the groundwork and the foundation, not only with the rest of the coaching staff, but with these players, that they know what they're doing. I mean, there are still elements that Mike Brown was doing in terms of choosing who was on the floor, how they were going to react to the developments of that game. Like I think back to game three against Portland, those sorts of things. But really, the groundwork had been laid. If it was a different circumstance like last year, then this would be this would be very different. But the player they they know where they are here at this point, and they're just running it the way they should. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's a good reminder that for all of the times that that fans like to freak out about uh, rotation decisions, or why are you playing this guy or that guy, or why are you doing this or why are you doing that, the vast majority of the stuff that a coach does has nothing to do with, like you said, the two and a half hours that you see them on TV. Uh, they, they they have a hell of a lot of other stuff going on that they're involved in. And the fact that the Warriors have been so successful with Steve kind of in and out and, you know, with Mike Brown reminding the shop and Steve like doing a lot of the stuff behind the scenes still, you know, I like you said, I think it's a good reminder that, you know, for people that think that the most, you know, that all coaching comes down to is, you know, whether you can draw on a whiteboard, you can, uh, you can, you know, pick which guys to go in the game. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a 24 seven job that requires a lot more, a lot of other things that a lot of times are far more important. And, you know, the Warriors are a good example, you know, when, from the, you can see from the moment Steve took over, it's just, they've been a much different team. And a lot of that, you know, while some of it is maturation of players and obviously now it's pretty part of it's adding Durant, it's, um, it's that ethos that, 
that Steve has instilled in this team from the moment he got there that that's really become kind of the driving force for a lot of they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Anything else from this game you feel we need to discuss? Not really, man. I'm honestly talked out about this series. I mean, it's 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 kind of silly to say that after two games, but I, you know, this has gone exactly like I thought it was going to coming into it, and I just. You know, I, I was hoping I'd be wrong and this would be a competitive series. and There'd be a lot to talk about. And hopefully game three, you know, the Cavs, you know, can either win or make really competitive. And then it's a different story. But otherwise, we're we're talking about the same exact story we've been talking about for for the last two games. And, and then it'll probably end in a sweep. And, you know, it. so, yeah, no, it's there's just that. Unfortunately, there's just there. It's not like last year where there was all this compelling stuff to talk about and different matchups and you know, guys being left alone and I mean, there are you know, different things that were going on, guys getting hurt or suspended or whatever. You know, this year we just don't have the same, the same level of drama and intrigue. I'm excited for game three, just because I think we're going to see what Cleveland can really do. And we'll have, we'll have a real good idea of where the series is going at that point, though. I think I already have a pretty good sense of it. And just to see what, Cle- how Cleveland co- reacts to this, you know, the idea that they've been now, they've really been punched in the mouth and see whether that, that offensive ceiling can be there. And also whether the Warriors can really put, put it together and bring the all around game that they need to, to win another, another big road game. Yeah, I am. I am interested to see Game Three for that reason too. I mean, that that to me will decide whether the series is interesting or not. I mean, because I think you know, I, I think if Golden State wins that that game, I think they're going to blow the Cavs out in Game Four um, and, and complete the sixteen and zero. So, you know, I, I would think that LeBron James and those guys, they're proud guys. They obviously, won the title last year. The Quick and Lo- Quick and Loans Arena is an incredibly loud, boisterous place. The fans there are great. I'm sure it's going to be a total madhouse on Wednesday and, you know, they're going to bring it and look, Golden State can not only smell it now, but they, I think, you know, it's, I think it's pretty clear. They'd love to go 16 and all and sweep these calves and, and really kind of put an exclamation point, like you said, on what happened last year and how that was the fluke and not them, not them winning two years ago. So, um, you know, I, I hope that's a hell of a game with, with the kind of stakes that should be on the line. And, you know, it'll, it'll probably tell us a lot about both teams, how it turns out. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anytime, man. Happy to do it. Thanks again to Tim Bontemps for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, T-I-M-B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. Really enjoyed talking with him, and I'm also doing a podcast with Nate Duncan, a Dunked On Basketball podcast, which will be more on the X's and O's in case you're into my opinion on that. I also kind of knew that going in, so it's part of the reason it goes in a different direction, but I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we we had, didn't have it planned out. That's just how he thought about the game and thought about everything else. So yeah, it's, it's always good to have those conversations, and I'm sure that I will be having those and writing those pieces as well once we have a a more direct idea of where the series is going, but I thought it was a fascinating performance overall. I thought that Durant was excellent. Curry had a brilliant second half, and then to get the team performance they did, despite Green's foul trouble, especially in the defensive end, was very, very impressive to me, and I thought both LeBron and Kevin Love were both excellent in the first half, so to get that against them and still have the lead, as I talked about with Tim, I thought that was significant. I will have pieces up on this game for The Athletic, both the Every Player Reviews and the Game Analysis. Both of those should be up by the time most people listen to this, so you can enjoy those as well as the Dunked On, which I already mentioned. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny LaRue on Twitter. 
You can also support the show by leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing, subscribing, download every, downloading every episode, and checking out our sponsors. Those are always good things that you can do to help out. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.